Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down at the Honesty headquarters in Maryland with Seth Goldman, co-founder and former CEO of Honesty, and executive chairman of Beyond Meat. Seth received his bachelor's from Harvard and graduated with a master's from Yale. Thanks for joining us, Seth. Good to be with you. Your father, an economist and expert on the economy of the former Soviet Union, and your mother, a professor of Chinese history, what was your youth like? Was there a heavy emphasis on academics in the household or were you free to pursue whatever interests you had? There was definitely a heavy emphasis on academics. It was high standards for sure, but there was also a global awareness that was part of my upbringing. And so dinner conversations weren't about sports teams or about the weather. It was about what's going on in the world and what can be done, what should be done. And there was also plenty of time and space and encouragement to pursue interests, which, you know, for me, weren't always academic. So I did do sports and I love to go outdoors and explore, go to exploring. And I also did um, theater and music as well. So you attended Harvard for studies in government affairs, which later materialized into working on Michael Dukakis's presidential campaign in 88 and serving as deputy press secretary for Senator Lloyd Benson. Where did this interest in government come from? Yeah, well, that goes back to that question about what should be done in the world, what's going on. And, you know, one of the things I, I think a core value I was raised on, which is if you see something that you care about, you should do something about it. You're, we're not observers in this world, you know, we're actors. And, and so that was something that I certainly became ingrained in me. And, and so looking at uh, policies, thinking that a, you know, politics was one way to solve them. And I think along the way, um, also came to realize that politics wasn't the only way to address issues that I care about. And so I also did work in the nonprofit sector and then went to business school thinking I was going to go back into the nonprofit sector and then found for-profit ways to address issues as well. Given your pivot out of public affairs while you were working on the campaign or serving as press secretary, did you ever feel out of place or misaligned with your own ideology or beliefs while in public affairs? No. You know, I at the time, the policies I was advocating for were policies I believed in. I mean, I look back now because I worked for Lloyd Benson, a senator from Texas, and there were certainly some stances he took that were, you know, pro-energy industry. And, and uh, but at the time, I think without having as much of a broader context, I, I certainly energy self-reliance is, is still something I believe in is important. But, you know, this was back in sort of the early 90s, where I would say there wasn't quite as much awareness about alternative energy. And, and certainly today, I think I would be, uh, I wouldn't have taken the same positions that are supported the same positions that I did at that time. Reflecting back upon your experience, what are the greatest lessons that you were able to take away from your time in government affairs? Well, a few things. First of all, uh, first, there are good and there are some good and decent people who genuinely are trying to do the right thing for the country and for the world. And I think Senator Benson was one of them. I had tremendous respect for him. He wasn't all about showboating. And, and so I thought that was a, a useful thing to see. I really enjoyed the times I would go travel with him to, through Texas and, and we'd go into these small cities and he really would get under the hood and look at what are some of the issues and how can you know the federal government address them. I think another thing that I learned and uh, because I was a press secretary, I understood you know, how, to, how to spread messages effectively, how to connect with people. Sometimes you know the, the message is important, but how it's told is equally important. So I remember there was a rally Senator Benson was to go speak at, and the speechwriter had prepared a very, it was, it was an, a rally around unemployment benefits, and the speechwriter had written a real 
policy paper and Venson tore the whole thing up and said, look, I'm going to go speak to unemployed workers. They, they don't want to hear about policies. They want to understand when are they going to get their paycheck. And, and so making sure that we are providing messages, whether it's a brand or a politician, making sure you're delivering messages people can understand, can relate to, and are easily accessible is really important. The same ideology, did you find it pervasive later when you were chatting maybe with, you know, workers on tea farms or when you were sourcing tea leaves themselves and how that materialized into the honesty brand? Well, it's also, yes, yes, in terms of dealing with the farmers, but also dealing with U.S. consumers, right? So, you know, we lo- we know at Honest Tea that certainly, um, and you can even tell in our office here, messaging like organic and fair trade are really important. But we also have to make sure the consumer here's the taste delicious we have to make sure they see a price point that makes it accessible we have to make sure the packaging easily communicates what are the benefits of this product so a lot of times the messages around consumer brands are ones consumers will be appreciative of it's just how they're delivered that's really important moving on to the foundations of honesty you attended the yale school of management for your master's How crucial would you say that time period was for purposes of starting a business, leaving aside the influence that one of your former professors had? Yeah, a few few things I got out of um, my time at Yale. Um, One was really helping appreciate the connection that business can have in the world of impact. I think I had really segregated the two. I had, had probably gone in thinking more about nonprofit and government as being fields where uh, sectors where you had to have impact and not considering how powerful business can be when it's handled as a vehicle for, for impact. So that was that was critical. And the first business case we picked up at uh, Yale School of Management when I was there was the Rainforest Crunch case, which was a, you know, a whole mission-driven enterprise that failed, but it was still one trying to do something exciting. And so that inspired me. And then I th- you know, obviously got put on a, that path in terms of um, internships. And, but I also really appreciated that I, I liked the whole entrepreneurial process. I, there wasn't a, an entrepreneurship course at Yale at the time, but a classmate and I wrote a business plan and won Yale's first business new enterprise competition. And so that got me energized, re- helped me realize I really, I like the entrepreneurial process. I like the idea of developing an idea, pitching a business idea. And so even though I didn't end up pursuing that particular idea, certainly my time at Yale helped instill in me that that was a path I'd like to take. What business idea did you submit for the competition? We had come across a, some science at the Yale School of Medicine that was a diagnostic around urinary tract infections. And so our business idea was to take that diagnostic and actually put it inside of an adult incontinence diaper. And the reason for that is because adult incontinence are the only folks who, who have asymptomatic urinary tract infections and of course because they're incontinence even harder to catch a sample and so that was it was really a diagnostic company and interesting business idea but not one that I'm personally passionate about or or could get as excited about as I did about iced tea or in this case you know plant-based meat. So I did read about your ideas around this specific area and diagnostics, but I didn't know it was in relation to the business plan competition. Yeah. Out of curiosity, have you heard of the company Pixie Scientific, which is actually working on exactly this idea? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. They're okay. based out of New York, and that's uh-huh. exactly what they've done. They've yeah. integrated the urinary diagnostics into the uh, adult diapers using. There you go. I'd love to l- learn more ideas. about that. I, I mean. It was an interesting idea. We basically abandoned it when, when I decided to launch Honesty and my classmate moved out to California. So I'm glad to see someone has made it into a business. 
So the classic case study on Coca-Cola versus Pepsi at Yale begins this thought for you on having some middle ground between zero-calorie bottled waters and high-calorie sugary drinks, and from there the foundation of honesty is laid. What type of validation did you do to assess whether this was a feasible business? It's one thing that you as an individual were not being catered to, right? but how did you confirm, or did you confirm at all that the larger market actually wanted to drink somewhere in the yeah. middle? Yeah, you know, there's only so much confirmation you can do. Yeah. We developed products that we liked. We sampled them with other people, they liked them. We did do two very basic focus groups just to make sure that some of the language we were using was relevant, but you know, I'm not a big believer in that market research is going to lead to product concepts. I think it can validate ideas, but, you know, as I said, if you would only rely on market research as big companies did, they would never have created an honesty. So, so, or Beyond Meat for that matter. So you've really got to start with an idea and then you can use market research to validate it, but you're not going to be able to derive ideas from market research, in my opinion. When you were forming the company and you started to form the product, why use any sweetener at all? Well, it does make a difference. We, you know, we've tasted and we still, we do sell drinks with zero sweetener at Honesty and some of them do quite well. But the fact is that some sweetener does make a difference around taste. And so, and we wanted to make sure these products were marketable. And even in the beginning, when we launched, there were, our products were just a little bit too unsweet. And they didn't do well beyond, they did fine in Whole Foods, but they didn't do well outside of that. And you can't build a business only in Whole Foods. Yeah. And so we needed to so come out with what we called just a tad sweet, which was a little bit sweeter. And that expanded the audience for our products greatly. So you start Honesty in 98 with your former professor at Yale, Barry Nailbuff. As an MBA student myself, I personally believe students don't fully leverage the knowledge and experiences that professors have. How exactly did Professor Nailbuff guide you in starting Honesty? Well, your point is a good one, that, that the professors are a great resource. And, uh, you know, as I look back now, you know, if you think about business ideas you want to start, there's lots of great column consultants available, and the professors. And when you're a student, you get to ask questions that a for-profit business would either not be able to ask or would have to pay for. So you're right, they should be taking advantage of those opportunities. But with... Um, with Barry, uh, we had converged around this idea when I was in business school, just that this was a missing part of the market, but we didn't do anything about it. Barry actually at the time said, oh, let's do some focus groups and I, you know, I got to find a job. I can't worry about that right now. And I, and I didn't. And then when I reached back out to him and I, uh, after having gone for a run and been thirsty, I said, okay, now there's something here I'm ready to do something about. And he was happy to be a partner and he had actually just um, come back from India and come up with the name Honesty, which was perfect for this concept. And so he was a great thought partner. He was a great advisor. Uh, he helped uh, raise money for the business, but really it was uh, every almost every day uh, for the first five years or so, we would check in and talk because there was just so many things going on, so many questions I had. And so it was really good to be able to talk to somebody who was a little bit removed from the business and didn't get so absorbed in every, you know, detail, but could also have had familiar enough with it that he could give great advice. When you started the business and maybe approached domains of knowledge where you didn't have expertise in them, say it was marketing or whatnot or yeah. distribution, how did you go about filling in those gaps of knowledge to materialize the business? You know, sometimes it was funny. Sometimes I'd reach out to Barry and he'd say, oh, it's so complicated. Let's just figure it out. And so, for example, around creating the recipe, we, we had a, a chai supplier 
for a chai drink we were developing who basically couldn't meet our demand. And I said, oh, what do we do? He says, well, what's so hard? Just make our own recipe. I'm like, well, I've never done that before. So well, what, what do you need? You need all the spices. So you use all the spices and just keep mixing them until you make something you like. I'm like, okay. And that's what I did. On other matters, he'd say, you know, is there a way to get at some range of an answer just with what we know? And, and a lot of times there was, you know, breaking the problem down into its smallest parts. Other times he would just say, you know, we, we're not gonna be able to answer this. Let's go either if it's a legal question or some other particular matter, let's just reach out and find someone who can give us the right advice. And sometimes um, that meant somebody who'd been, you know, in the field or similar experience. Other times it was really just sort of, you know, networking to find the right answer. But what was good is that when there were problems out there, he would, you know, I, I used to joke, he would, I'd run the business at the day, he would run it at night, he'd be he'd be thinking about ideas and he'd wake up in the morning and say, I got an idea. So we had, you know, two, two minds thinking, and by the way, two minds that think very differently, thinking about the same problem, and that was also useful. For purposes of building a business, I've read that your approach was that you have to be all in as opposed to building a business during nights and weekends. Right. What advice do you have for those looking to start a business, but maybe have significant obligations at this point in time, be that a mortgage, a yeah. loved one to look after, kids, etc.? So at least with respect to a consumer product, there are ways to probe the, the feasibility of the business. So let's say it's a food product, you can be going to farmer's markets and set up a stand and bait, whether you're making the product at home or making it in a, I guess really you should be making it in a food, you know, safe kitchen. But you can, you can absolutely start developing feasibility, improving uh, proof of concept through that approach. So I think it, that's a really healthy way to do it. You don't have to go all in overnight. For me, I had basically, before I left my job in the finance world, I had had gained enough I'd spoken to enough people with my prototypes that I felt like there was at least something here worth trying. I'd, I would discourage somebody from taking a leap, you know, leaving some financial security for something that has, has yet to be proven in some way. What was the most difficult thing in retrospect about starting a company like Honesty? Oh, everything was hard. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the financing was hard, the distribution was hard, really hard, production was hard. The marketing and sales were probably a little easier because it was a unique product, but everything's hard. You know, there's, there's, there's no shortcuts on this, especially when you're doing it the first time when you don't know the business you're in. People are not generally inclined to, to help you out. I mean, I don't want to say people were set up to make us be defeated, but, you know, other people have other things they're doing. So you have to convince them you're worth in, you know, paying, give, giving some time to. From what you've mentioned of the business so far, it seems as if there weren't any significant pivots from when you started the business. Is that true? Uh, well, we did make this shift around sweetness. So we started with what was just initially our sweetness profile was, you know, half a teaspoon or one teaspoon per eight ounce serving. We, we moved to what we call just a tad sweet, which was generally two teaspoons. And that that did make a difference. So that was that was a bit of a shift. When we started, we had some organic ingredients, but it wasn't the bottles weren't certified organic. We did get the business to be certified organic. That was an important evolution. And then, of course, we also evolved to fair trade. And then the other piece was just around the product offerings. We started just with tea, and we had tea bags, which were not successful. But then we shifted over to Honest Kids, which is our kids' drink, and that has been extremely successful. For those looking to get into the food and beverage business today, what exactly was the process from ideation to delivering a single case of your beverage? It was it was relatively short. You know, I uh, 
so I talked with Barry in September, you know, so I guess where we are now, 22 years ago. Uh, we started talking in September around this idea. I felt like there was enough there, there that by the December of 1997, I, you know, resigned my, or I handed in my resignation. I didn't officially resign until the end of January of 98. And then I started the business basically February of 98 and we launched our product at the end of May. So you're talking about uh, February, March, April, May, basically four months from idea to market launch, which is, which is of course pretty intense. But I'm a believer in that. I'm a believer in, you know, the product's not going to be perfect when it gets to the shelf, but if it's 80% there, if it's, you know, the taste is roughly where you want it to be, the packaging is roughly where you want it to be, let's get to market and start learning because you know you're going you're gonna to have to tweak it anyway. So four months, I would say, is aggressive and worth trying, worth trying to do because you got to get started. And, and I've, I see some food businesses that spend months or even years in, in development. And it's like, uh, you know, you're, you're, the, the meter's running while, while all that's going on. At a high level, though, in terms of if someone wanted to start a business similar to Honesty today, say some mm -hmm. type of specialty beverage, do they develop the recipe at home, then contact someone that bottles? What is that Yeah, you could process? start with developing and getting really close at home. And then you, if you work with a bottling plant, they'll help you sort of get the last 5% of the way there. Or, And there are these companies that do it. Sometimes the flavor providers will help you do that. But, you know, you've also got to develop the label. Um, so there are there are companies set up to do this. But you have to make sure you're bringing to market something distinctive and different enough that you're not going to get lost in the on the shelf. So in an interview, you mentioned that you almost acted like a nonprofit for the first ten years because yes. there was no profit. We were a nonprofit. Yes. What was the emotional journey as an entrepreneur during that time? Was there a significant pressure from investors or family to rethink how you fundamentally approach the business? No, and no pressure from family. Investors were happy because we were growing so quickly, so they understood that there was something being built. On the financial side, it was a little hard just because we needed to pay people. We needed to pay vendors. We needed to not run out of money. So, and we couldn't pay anybody too well. <laughs> I mean, we paid employees, but they didn't get market rate salaries. We paid our vendors, but we usually couldn't pay them all up on time. And so, you know, that part of it is stressful. Uh, and then, of course, in order to keep being able to pay people because we were losing money, we had to go out and raise money. And so, investors you know have expectations obviously we met them in the long term but in the short term you know you need to convince them that you're building something and we were building something that was clear people could see it in terms of the shelf space expansion they could see it in terms of our sales velocities so it was a credible story it wasn't like we were you know putting out hot air and, and telling people to think it's something else so in 2003, the business went through a bottling crisis where defective glass bottles began exploding due to a manufacturing defect. What went through your mind in terms of how to approach this situation? Yeah. And I feel like this question is the prompt at the end of a business case. <laughs> yeah, it was a scary time. We, we had a defective glass that got delivered to our bottling plant and we have certain protocols, not all of which were followed by the bottling plant, but the, the number of defective bottles was way more than, you know, um, spec you you know there's an expectation there's going to be some defects but this really almost every bottle had some bubbles or blisters and so they just could not hold up to the heat we put our our liquid in our bottles at 190 degrees and so that was um, causing the bottles to break so it was scary because we had two different whole food stores where customers found broken piece of glass and whole foods had a three strikes and you're out so we were kind of one little piece of glass away from 
you know, getting kicked out of Whole Foods, which would really would have been fatal to the business. And so we went back and looked, uh, and we took, we decided to pull all our bottles from the shelf from the date of those delivery of those glass bottles. But in our own warehouse, we discovered some broken glass from a bottle from before that production run, and that made us realize we couldn't, with confidence, say there was no other glass out there. No, and nobody, um, just to be clear, no one got you know hurt or seriously injured, but we just that was we took it very seriously that that both the the risk and our obligation to make sure we were making a safe product. So we actually went a step further, not just pulling the glass from the the date of the defective glass delivery, but we went back and pulled back all um, bottles from prior to that date, which as a small company doing, you know, probably where were we, less than $5 million in sales, it was just a huge blow to the business, a huge distraction for our salespeople who want to be selling product, putting product on the shelf as opposed to taking it off the shelf. But ultimately, it was the right decision. It helped build confidence in our, our distributors and our retailers. And in fact, a another iced tea company that existed at the time that we did was a competitor of ours, had gotten the same faulty, you know, defective glass delivered to their bottling plant. They did, they chose not to withdraw their product and they actually went out of business within a year after that. So it was painful, but it showed we were going to live up to our name and do what's right for the consumer and right for our partners. And, and, and I think that's still, you know, something that, that has been appreciated by the trade. To inform those on the topic of management expertise when running a business, how did the conversation with your supplier for the bottles pan out when you found out oh, about yeah. the defectives? Well, it was real. And once again, when I said everything was tough, it was a great example of that because we went to the bottle supply company said, this is terrible. Like you guys almost put us out of business. We, and they said, okay, well, you don't have to pay us for that defective glass. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. But you also have to reimburse us for, we said, all of the, Pro, you know, so we couldn't use a glass, but all the labels we put on, all the caps, all the tea leaves, and all the lost sales. They said, "Well, we'll cover you on the, you know, the labels and the tea leaves. We're not going to cover the lost sales." And then we went to the bottling plant and said, "Look what happened here." And they said, "Well, you know, it's, we had bad glass delivered." And so basically, we ended up eating the biggest part of that cost. So even though, in some sense, we we didn't make the bottles, we didn't make the, the finished product, we were the ones who had to pay the price for it. So. That was a challenging, challenging year for sure. Stressful time. Yeah, like I say, you know, we, we, we made it through, but it's just tough. That's often what happens with small businesses is they, they have the least leverage in these kind of situations. Given what you know now, if you were to start the business all over again, what would you have done differently in terms of running the business? Oh, well, <laughs> there was uh, six years in there where we were um, part owners of a bottling plant. And so even though we weren't running the plant as part owners, we were responsible for what happened there. So that was another reason we couldn't go back and, and get our rebates on this defective production. But it was also a huge distraction. It was not building the business the way, you know, running a bottling plant is very different from building a brand, selling product. So I think to the extent we could have just focused on building the brand, that would have been better. And it was only after we divested from the bottling plant that we became a much stronger business. So when I went through the website, what I found particularly interesting was that a lot of the current teas are all primarily fruit flavored, and the retired section contains the palette of almost quote unquote actual teas, including the jasmine green, Assam black, Kashmiri chai, and the tea bags themselves, which you mentioned earlier. 
Why do these products end up in the grave when one might be inclined to think that for a beverage company focused on teas, the greater the variety of actual teas, the better? Well, so, you know, not that's not completely true. I mean, our one of our top sellers is Just Green Tea, which as it suggests is Just Green Tea. We also have a Just Black Tea that does very well. But I do think the American palate is more used to flavors. So, you know, this the tea drinking, well, people do drink hot tea here generally, you know, with little flavor. When iced tea sort of gained traction, it came out as an alternative to sodas, which obviously are flavored drinks, and alternative to juices. So I think this um, the teas we sell are a true authentic tea taste, but just a little bit closer or more flavored than unflavored teas. Uh, that said, I would, I would argue, and I, I think I, I believe, that uh, our teas are certainly more authentic tasting than most of the bottled teas out there. Most of the bottled teas in the shelves today are really much more like tea-flavored drinks rather than authentically brewed tea. In an article where you highlighted your wife's contributions to the business, you dive into how the family was cash-strapped as the business was growing. Two questions. One, at what point was the business profitable on a unit economic basis? And two, in retrospect, would you have done anything differently to reach break-even quicker? So in 2004, we were close to break-even as a business. and. We got to the place, that was something that was important to show our margins made sense. If we wanted to be profitable, we could, but there's a trade-off between being break-even or growing. We said, okay, so we know we could be profitable, but rather than seek to break-even or profitable, let's keep growing at this pace, which was, you know, I think we were averaging about 66% annual growth rate. Let's keep that going. That's going to be more exciting to everybody than, you know, a, a 10% business uh, growing you know, growing at 10% but but just um, profitable so but that that growth rate did allow us to continue to raise money to basically keep the lights on and really it wasn't until after coca-cola acquired the company in 2011 we started to become more profitable partially that was due to just the scale of it but i think you have to separate the idea of profitability as a business and financial viability so because we were growing as quickly as we were growing, we were a financially viable business and a financially attractive business. And the valuation of the enterprise, the our ability to raise money, continued to grow as the as the sales of the business grew. So, you know, obviously it worked out for our investors. And and I will say, uh, my wife and my family were always supportive. They weren't focused on the profitability. They knew, they saw the business growing. They knew we were doing uh, some some important work. And, and so there wasn't that pressure to deliver. So eventually you decided to sell a stake of the business to Coca-Cola, a company synonymous with sugary drinks, but also one with one of the greatest distribution networks in history. You've mentioned why you sold the stake, but what factors did you go through in your head prior to relinquishing the stake? And how long did you believe it would have taken you to establish the scale that Coca-Cola has afforded the business? Mm -hmm. So we had already had discussions with other companies that were interested who proactively reached out to us. And we didn't get to a point of agreement with those other companies, but it did help in our own mind say, oh, well, those conversations didn't work out. Here's why. And so here's what we were looking for when the next person called. And when Coca-Cola called, I said it in a way that wasn't meant to be gamesmanship. I just said, you know, appreciate your interest. Here's the only scenarios under which we're going to be able to consider working with you. And I laid it out. And for Coca-Cola, those were actually quite they fit what they were looking for. And just briefly, some of them was, you know, we don't want to sell right now. We're happy to have an investor, but we want a partner. We, we're not ready to turn over the leadership or guidance of the business. We want to continue to build the business ourselves. We want to stay true to what we've always stood for around healthier drinks or organic and fair trade. 
And all of those things were things they, they wanted as well. So we continued the conversation uh, and, and it you know really um, made sense. And so that's how, how we ended up working with them. And, and in terms of reaching scale, um, you know, I look at where we are now, we're in about 100, we, we were in about 15,000 outlets before Coke invested, we're in over 150,000 outlets now. Um, and of course, we're now distributed all around the world. We are in. Um, so they delivered, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, they have, and I don't, I don't know that we could have ever reached that level of distribution on our own, just because distribution is 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 tough. It's a very, as I said, very different business, and uh, you know, for me to worry about putting trucks on the ground in Singapore, or that's that's a different level of work and a different level of resources, and, and uh, I, it feels to me like it was the right decision. What's next for honesty? So we continue to expand. We're actually going to a natural product expo here uh, this week in Baltimore that we're going to be launching a whole set of new products. So for us, we continue to innovate. You know, the, the guardrails for our innovations are always has to be organic, always has to be less sweet than the rest of the market, and always has to be fair trade whenever that's an option. And so when you think about those guardrails, it's pretty broad where you can go. And by the way, those guardrails requires it has to be beverages. So we'll also be thinking about how we expand beyond just the beverage aisle. And of course, the other piece is expansion internationally. We are uh, meeting with a customer from Europe this week who is interested in expanding. We've, we've launched a line called Honest Lemonade in uh, Europe that is doing really well. And um, they're excited to, to learn more about that story. On to the other hat that you wear. You're the executive chairman of Beyond Meat, a producer of plant-based meat substitutes founded in 2009 that recently had a blockbuster IPO with its stock up to $154.99 as of Friday's close from its $25 IPO price. How exactly did you get involved with the company and later become executive chairman? Yeah, so in 2011, we sold to Coca-Cola and I started to think, okay, well, I've, I've taken this one brand and scaled it. There's still work to do with Honesty, but what would be another great challenge to, to get involved with? And just as I was, I was thinking about that, my wife read this article about a company getting going in California called Beyond Meat. And our family has been vegetarian for, I guess, 14 years now. But we had, we became vegetarian not because we disliked the taste of meat. We became, you know, vegetarian uh, based on some ethical decisions. And so we really missed meat, even though we chose not to eat it. And so when she read this article about this company that was seeking to replicate the taste and texture of meat, using only plants, she said at the time, wow, this would be this would be an amazing gift and great idea if we could find a way for this company to, to succeed. And so I emailed info at beyondmeat.com and said, I read this article. If there's any way I can help, I'd love to get involved. And I, they needed some help. They were, you know, I'd say going through some challenging times. And I got involved as an advisor and board member. And then as my role here at Honesty started to shift to, I'd say, less of a full-time role, it felt like a great opportunity to, to also work with Beyond Meat and um, created this great balance where I get to be executive chair and help advise Beyond Meat and think about strategy and growth and uh, actually do a little quite the same here at Honesty, think about innovation and growth and, and strategy as we go forward here. And, and it's a fun, you know, one is in the organic camp, one is in the plant-based protein camp, a lot of the same playbook, but not totally the same playbook, a lot of the same customers, but not always the same. And uh, a lot of the same people, in fact, we interact with. And so it's just a really fun way to get involved in two entrepreneurial mission-driven enterprises. If you were to give yourself a cheat day and have one meal with actual meat in it, what meal would you have? 
You know, we do miss salmon. We liked salmon when we were, uh, uh, we had we had become, we were sort of thinking about becoming vegetarian, but we kept eating salmon and, and my wife used to make a really good salmon. But I don't, I really don't miss meat now. I mean, sometimes we'll smell something and say, ah, oh, that smells good. But <laughs> but we've been having so much fun with, you know, Beyond Meat. We had a Beyond Sausage at breakfast yesterday. There's some great products that make it much easier to, to have a plant-based diet. So Beyond Meat obviously has competitors, including Impossible Foods. Why do you believe Beyond Meat is positioned for greater success? So taste is a key delineator here. You've really got to make sure the product um, is without, it can't be, oh, this is good for plant-based meat. It just has to taste good. And so that's a key thing. I think another piece, though, is the the approach, um, you know, having been established my career in the natural foods field, I, you want to be able to make sure your product passes muster with, I'd say, people who are uh, we call it the conscious consumer and so beyond me we made the decision early on not to use genetically modified ingredients because we think that that's not what the consumer wants at this time and so it has helped us stand alone on the shelf we did have we have the non-gmo seal on our product and uh, certainly for whole foods where we've just seen phenomenal results that's been a key part of our success so what's interesting about meat substitutes is that they've existed for hundreds of years in the form of vegetables. Right. The Indian menu is one that's been thriving on dishes comprising of primarily vegetables. Do you believe in this company for purposes of converting meat eaters or for pushing vegetarians towards the experience of eating meat without actually eating meat? Yeah, we, we never designed this company to, to be marketed towards vegetarians. I mean, it's great if they like the product and a lot of them do. They're very passionate. but. This is not about trying to market a product to, to vegetarians. We have no interest in becoming the best-selling vegetarian, best-selling veggie burger. This is really about reaching the meat eater or, or who, who now could be the flexitarian. And so one of the really neat things we saw when we looked at our Kroger shopping cart data is that 93% of the people buying the Beyond Burger also had meat in their shopping cart. And so it suggests we really are reaching the, a much wider audience. And of course, that's a much bigger audience that the percentage of people who are vegan or vegetarian is roughly 5% of the population. And that's just not a, enough of a business to make a, a, build a national brand on, let alone an international brand. And so we, the key, though, is that most meat eaters and most American consumers, in fact, a lot of consumers do value the convenience and the density of what a burger offers. You know, Being able to, to get a full serving of protein in a um, relatively easy to prepare product and, and that's something that we're able to do through the Beyond Burger. In terms of reaching audiences, Beyond Meat has a number of high profile partnerships including KFC, Subway and the Dunkin' brand as well. What future partnerships could you potentially see as being exciting? Well, you can imagine any place that's serving uh, animal protein and substitute in the Beyond version of it. And so it really is uh, and limitless possibilities. And so every major restaurant chain has been awakened to this potential and you know, if you saw what happened with KFC last month, I mean, the visibility they got, the response they got was so exciting. And it was, it's worth noting, it's not the first time KFC has, has had vegetarian offerings. It was the brand and the way it was presented that really drove that excitement. And so brands do matter here. The product itself matters. And one of the reasons we're excited to you know, see other chains try the same kind of thing. You mentioned Kroger's. A customer has decided to roll out its own plant-based products under the label Simple Truth. Mm -hmm. And then Kellogg's has rolled out Incognito, interesting name. And Nestle's already trying out its awesome burger with McDonald's in Germany. 
What do you say to that? Do you believe others can easily surpass the knowledge that Beyond Meat has acquired in regards to product development? Yeah. Well, like it's good for the category to have more entrance. Correct. It's good for retailers to build out this part of the store and for us to be the flagship brand there. We believe, as I said earlier, taste matters. So anybody can make plant-based burger, but we have 70 scientists who are singularly focused on creating meat from plants and have been doing it for 10 years now. And so it is harder than it looks. And there's a lot of products out there that don't taste great. And so I'm not worried about the category. I mean, more people are coming in. So I think that this is not a, there's not a zero sum game here. I do think we're going to continue to grab share from the meat category, which is a $1.4 trillion category. So, and they're helping to expand the size of the market for you. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I think the consumer will find the products that taste the best and will reward those. And certainly as you look at what's happened in terms of the restaurant chains, look, whether it's KFC or some of the or subway, some of the other partners you mentioned, they, they deal with big meat companies. They chose to go with us because we offer something they weren't finding elsewhere. What are the greatest insights that you've taken away regarding American consumer preferences in food and beverage from your work experience thus far? Well, what's interesting is you see the consumer moving in two different directions, very different directions. One is what I've called the undoing of food, which is that idea of simplifying and simple, transparent supply chains, transparent label and ingredients. And that's personified by an honest tea. And at the same time, you see this redoing of food, and that's what you see with Beyond Meat, where we can recreate a product, recreate a category using, in this case, plants to make it improve upon either some health or environmental efficiencies or externalities. And uh, consumers reward that. They're two very different trends. You might think they're almost oppositional or polar, you know, but in both cases, they're really around how do we give consumers something different than what they've had before. And, and that's clearly being rewarded. So it seems as if people are trying to infuse CBD into anything and everything these days, coffee, water, juices. Yeah. Do you have thoughts around the industry? No, I, I'm, you know, look, I'm excited when entrepreneurs find an opportunity. That's not a, that's not a category that I'm um, personally involved in. So, you know, I think we'll see what actually is effective versus whether what's different than the hype. I'll just set watch. It's not something we have any plans to enter. And are there any food and beverage companies besides Beyond Meat or besides Honesty that you're particularly excited about today? Well, uh, one thing that's interesting, my son this week is launching a, a new restaurant concept. Um, it's Congratulations. Actually, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. I'll, I'm going to, they're having a, a sort of preview night tonight. So it's, uh, plant, it's called Plant Burger. It's a plant-based burger restaurant. Really, really fun the way it's been put together. Beautiful menu and, and great tasting menu. And it's kind of, uh, you know, they, they're carrying on as tea so, and Beyond Meat, so I have to love the restaurant. <laughs> so that's really fun to see that sort of take, take its form and, and, and uh, be launched. I've also seen, you know, I like the, um, I like certain like chains like Sweetgreen. I think those are good. Those are, you know, also in that vein of undoing, right? Simplicity and transparent uh, food and supply chains. There's other interesting things going on in, around plant-based foods. Um, one, one of my other sons is working for a plant-based dairy company. It's interesting to see them uh, go out there and start to develop good analogs. So the analogs are getting better. One category where I have yet to taste a um, good offering is plant-based cheese. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I said vegetarian, not vegan. Uh, we, we still eat eggs and cheese. And um, I have yet to taste a vegan cheese that, in my opinion, is as good 
uh, or as you know, analogous to Beyond Meat, you know, Beyond Meat is to the burger as X is to the cheese, and I haven't found that X yet. What are three pieces of advice that you'd give new entrepreneurs? So the first one is make sure you find something you're really passionate about. This work is hard, as I said before. It's it's demanding. It it, it has a high potential of not being financially rewarding. So make sure you're excited about what you're doing from the start. I would say another key piece is to be really careful with your cash. You see entrepreneurs get financing and they go out and spend it and then all of a sudden they look up and oh, financing's gone. What do you have to show for it? And so make sure your margins make sense. Uh, it's really hard to, if you're, if you're, if you're losing money every time you sell a product, it's, it's, you can't make that up in volume. So uh, make sure you sort of figure that out. Uh, and then I think the other one is make sure that your team gets empowered. It's very easy for the entrepreneur to think he or she knows everything. And if you're higher, if you bring people on, you've got to make sure they have the ability to be entrepreneurs themselves. And so that means they have to have autonomy, accountability, and transparency. They get to understand the results as well. Before we end, I have a quick rapid fire for you. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, what's your favorite vegetable? Broccoli. Best thing about being vegetarian? Beyond meat. Would you ever go vegan? If you could give me good eggs and cheese. You've mentioned that you started Honest Tea because you were thirsty. You got involved with Beyond Meat because you were hungry. What company would Seth Goldman start if he was sleepy? Sleepy? Probably a, a good mattress, like a really good mattress. Would you ever start a company again? Well, I'm really happy to see my son doing this work. I know what is involved in launching a company, and I'm, I, I like to empower entrepreneurs. I'm involved in lots of different companies as an advisor. If I felt there was something that I, only I could do, maybe, but you know, for now, what's great about at Beyond Meat, we have a great CEO and I love being his partner and advisor. So I don't, uh, I, I guess I can't answer that definitively. It would just depend on if I came across the right idea and felt like I was the only one who could do it. Your favorite pastime? Playing with my sons. Your favorite non-Coca-Cola owned beverage? I'm on the board of a company called Ripple, which sells plant-based dairy. So I, I certainly think they make a nice product. That was Seth Goldman, co-founder and former CEO of Honest Tea and executive chairman of Beyond Me. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Ryl. 